This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. No limits free diving is an extreme sport. Using any means, a diver goes down as far as possible on a single breath. No scuba gear or other breathing apparatus of any kind, just one big breath in and a staggering amount of focus. There's no room for error. The diver has to be as relaxed and calm as humanly possible. Any panic can be fatal. In practice, no limits freediving typically involves descending with a weighted sled before inflatable bags bring the diver back to the surface. Along the way, the diver stops to equalize and decompress so as not to suffer the potentially fatal consequences of decompression sickness. The world record holder is an Austrian, Herbert Nietzsche, the first person in history to dive more than 200 meters on a single breath of air. He has dived to 253 meters, that's 830 feet. So that's the height of a 60-story skyscraper, taller than all but a handful of buildings in Europe. He can hold his breath for over nine minutes and holds multiple world records across the full range of freediving events. All of this has earned him the title The Deepest Man on Earth. He and many other freedivers have continued to push far beyond what scientists had assumed were the limits of human ability underwater. And they're part not only of a long tradition of freediving going back thousands of years or more, but of a more fundamental connection humans have always had with what lies beneath the surface of the ocean. I'm Helen Roswodowski. I'm a professor of history and maritime studies at the University of Connecticut. I started out as a historian of oceanography, ocean sciences, as a historian of science. And what I realized was that I was studying how people came to know the ocean. And I began to realize that it would be interesting and important to think about how people, in addition to scientists, came to know about the ocean. Professor Rosodowski researches our complex and fascinating relationship with the ocean how people and cultures across the world know and understand the sea, whether through myths and legends, through trade or fishing, exploration or entertainment. This episode is going to explore one particular aspect of all of this, our relationship with the undersea, what lies beneath the surface of the oceans. And it's the fourth in my loose mini-series of literary locations, following Antarctica, the desert and the forest. The other week, I watched the latest Pixar film with my kids, Luca. Not maybe Pixar's greatest work, but a very fun and imaginative film. Luca is a sea monster living below the surface of the water near the Italian town of Porto Rosso. What his parents haven't told him, and what he soon discovers with the help of a new friend, is that he and all sea monsters turn into humans as soon as they leave the water. So Luca sets off on an adventure of self-discovery, all the while trying not to get wet and raise the suspicions of the sea monster hunting Porterosso locals. The setup of this story follows in a long tradition of human-sea creature hybrids. In Celtic mythology, for example, here in Ireland and elsewhere, there are selkies, creatures who can change from seal to human form, and similar mythological creatures exist all over the world. Most famously, of course, mermaids and merfolk have long become a mainstay of popular culture. 
And these myths and tales all connect to the ancient and widespread conception that humans, despite living on land, have a fundamental connection to the sea. A lot of cultures in Oceania have stories about having come to the island that they live on from the west, so from uh, the ocean, but from the western direction. Uh, There are great lakes in the United States stories about creation myths that happen with undifferentiated water and then a turtle kind of coming out and, and bringing up dirt and creating sort of land. So, so there, there are examples of, of uh, creation stories that really suggest some kind of awareness that, that oceans were first, which they were. Alongside a long history of creation myths and religion and folklore, there are also the scientific explanations of human origins, which began emerging more systematically in the 19th century, most famously with Charles Darwin. As scientists were exploring and categorizing the natural world and proposing theories of evolutionary development and human origins, the ocean depths were also being explored. The colonial powers of the time began extensively mapping the oceans for scientific, commercial and, of course, military purposes. And these three categories are always closely intertwined in this period. The ocean depths, many naturalists of the time believed, could hold any number of answers to the questions they were asking. How had marine life and all life evolved? Could there even be life beyond certain depths in the ocean? And if so, what could it tell us? Initially, all these questions could only really be answered at fairly shallow depths. In the mid-19th century, naturalists would go out in rowboats and use modified oyster dredges to catch whatever was possible a few fathoms down. Fathoms. Fathoms. I did not know how much a fathom was before doing this episode. A fathom is six feet, which is the wingspan of an adult man, because sailors would measure the depths of oceans by throwing a weighted line into the water. And then when the weight hit the bottom, uh, they would grab an arm's length worth of rope and count one fathom, two fathoms, three fathoms. That works if you're just measuring the depth in a few fathoms. Sorry, that's a little bit of a side, but... Um... <laughs> oh, this show is all about the asides. So once naturalists started being able to... Um, sample marine life in, you know, 50 fathoms, 100 fathoms, they started discovering species like crinoids, certain species of stocked crinoids that were unknown alive, but were known as fossils. And so there there came to be this idea that the deep sea was the place where all of the missing animals lived, because there was a sense that things shouldn't go extinct Uh, So if you knew something as a fossil and you couldn't find it a living, then that was a challenge to creationism. Uh, And so one idea was that the the ocean might be full of many of these missing forms of life. There was also a very influential theory of this time that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. So it was developed by a German scientist, Ernest Haeckel, and what it stated was that embryos, as they developed, so this is the ontogeny bit, went through all the same stages as a species did when it evolved, the phylogeny part. So, for example, certain fish-like aspects of human embryonic development could be seen to recall the fish ancestry of human evolutionary development. 
And this may all sound firstly, you know, wrong, which it was, but also extremely technical and of interest maybe only to the scientific community of the time. But it was actually a very well-known popular concept. The phrase ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny would have been fairly widely understood in the 19th and into the 20th century. A good example of a manifestation of that in Darwin and Heckel's own time is the Charles Kingsley water baby's tale. It's this kind of moral fable about this boy who's kind of morally backsliding and he transforms into this gilled tiny creature, water creature, as a way of giving him a chance to kind of redo his own moral evolution and and emerge at the other end as a, a good boy. In the 20th century, it's even the basis for an entire trilogy of Edgar Rice Burroughs' pulp adventure tales, the Caspak series. So, in short, the undersea became a central part of evolutionary theory and of speculation about human origins and development. Of course, it wasn't old naturalists looking to explore the depths of the ocean at this time. The other very important reason to reach the bottom of the sea was to lay cables. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace and goodwill toward men. These were the words of the first telegraph sent across the Atlantic in 1858. The connection had finally been made after several failed attempts, with one end in Newfoundland in Canada and the other in Ireland on Valencia Island in Kerry. It was slow, so a little over two minutes to transmit a single character, so even a relatively short message might take several hours to send. But the alternative was sending a letter by ship, which could take weeks, so, you know, a major improvement. And this was the beginning of transatlantic telegraphy. And after that, submarine telegraphy took off, including across the width of the Pacific. So learning the topography, learning what the bottom was made out of, trying to see if it would be safe to put telegraph wires at the bottom of the ocean. Maybe there were currents, maybe there were other dangers to the cable. That was a big motivation for for studying the undersea in the mid sort of second half of the 19th century. But what about people? Not dredging or looking for scientific clues to human origins, not laying cables for communication, but diving underwater to explore, to see what was down there. Generally speaking, most scientists of the 19th century were happy to send equipment into the oceans, but they weren't really going to go down there themselves. Throughout the century, various improvements were made to diving bells and dress, which did allow people to dive for salvage operations and for other reasons. But these were still complex operations in bulky and restrictive gear. It was later, after the Second World War, for the first time in history, that an easy way for people to dive and stay underwater came about. With the invention of self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, scuba. But before we go on, I wanted to take a very quick break to tell you about two things. One is Headstuff Plus. This is the last episode in this series, and if you stay to the very end, I have a few announcements about what's to come next. In the meantime, though, if you'd like to support the show and everything I do, then please become a member of Headstuff Plus. This is the support platform for this show and for all the shows on the Headstuff Network. And for €5 a month or more, if you like, you can sign up and get a ton of bonus material. So not just from this show, but from every show on the network. There's a link in the notes to this episode or head to Headstuff. There's a lot of heads in there. Go straight to headstuffpodcast.com headstuffpodcasts.com 
And if your next question is, well, what else would you recommend on this wonderful network? You're in luck. I would recommend Basically with Stephanie Preissner. It's great. It breaks down complicated topics to the basics with the perfect guest each time. Professor Luke O'Neill talking about coronavirus, a finance expert on your finances, a funeral director on dying, the Taoiseach on, you know, being the leader of a country. Have a listen. It's great. My name is Stephanie Preissner and my podcast is called Basically. And basically it makes complex things basic. Are you confused by health insurance? Are you confused by getting a mortgage? Are you confused about how to sort out your personal finances? Any of the things that confuse you, I can make basic for you. We've had guests like Luke O'Neill, Harry Barry, Mary Lou MacDonald, Roz Purcell, and on Taoiseach, Michal Martin. It's hard for me to promote the podcast because it really is what you want me to explain. So tune in and I hope you like it. So let's dive back in. Sorry, that was always going to happen. I've already resisted saying this is a deep dive episode. So with the invention of scuba diving, you have two things emerging. A new, easy and relatively accessible way to dive underwater and an emerging belief that perhaps humans could do more than just dive below the surface for a couple of hours. Perhaps they could live under the sea. Sorry, that was always going to happen too. So... The person who invented the first practical scuba gear is Jacques Cousteau. He was in the French Navy. He had been a pilot. Uh, He became very interested in uh, underwater swimming. And he was also, before that, even interested in photography. And he brought these interests. He was really kind of of an inventor and technology guy. Uh, Some people who know him from his underwater environmentalist TV shows from the 1970s may think of him more as a scientist and certainly think of him as an environmentalist, but he was really a technology enthusiast and he started his underwater exploits uh, not at all being an environmentalist. He, He began to build underwater habitats where divers could live and work underwater for periods of time in the 1960s. And the reason he did that was because it was believed that human underwater workers would be required for the emerging offshore oil industry and for other expected, mostly extractive uses of the ocean, industrial uses, agricultural uses of the ocean. Cousteau ran the Conshelf 1 experiment in 1962, where a group of oceanauts, as they were called, lived in an underwater habitat 10 metres below the surface. And there were lots of these underwater habitat experiments across the 1960s at various depths and for different lengths of time. In France, Cousteau ran Conchelf 1, 2, 3. In the US, there were various iterations of Sea Lab, not to be confused with Sea Lab 2021, that brilliantly weird Adult Swim cartoon. All of this also brought back memories of that 90s TV show SeaQuest DSV with a kind of a talking dolphin, but I'm really getting off track here. Anyway, underwater habitats were really big in the 1960s, and out of this came Jacques Cousteau's concept of Homo aquaticus. An idea which brings us back to evolutionary theory and all those myths of underwater civilizations. And an idea which would, in turn, influence a whole swathe of popular culture stories and science fiction in particular. So Cousteau originally believed that Homo aquaticus would need to involve a surgical intervention to implant gills 
in a human body so that people could breathe underwater uh, and get rid of carbon dioxide from, from their bodies. And their lungs would have to be filled with an incompressible liquid so that when they went down to the depths, their empty cavities like lungs wouldn't just simply collapse. But he believed, or he asserted that he believed, that after people had lived underwater for a generation or more, somehow, which he didn't really explain in any great detail, uh, that conscious evolution directed by human intelligence would cause there to be a more permanent biological evolution, more permanent change. And, and many, most of the Homo aquaticus ideas from the 1960s onward similarly made this move that Cousteau did where he mingled or conflated evolution and technology to come up with these various versions of ideas of, of people underwater, human bodies underwater. And while Cousteau might have been sketchy on the details, there very much were experiments happening at this time to test the human capacity to live and breathe underwater. There were people doing physiological experiments trying to flood the lungs of mammals. They started with mice and dogs, but eventually one researcher found a very brave human volunteer, uh, a former sea lab diver, who had his lung, one lung flooded with an oxygen-rich liquid, and, uh, and he was able to breathe uh, oxygen directly from this supersaturated with oxygen liquid. So there were, there were a wide variety of efforts to try in the 1960s and 70s to try to kind of make Homo aquaticus happen. And so all of this, as you can imagine, made for some great inspiration for science fiction and other stories of underwater worlds and human-fish hybrid people. There had, of course, long been a tradition of underwater civilizations, the most well-known being Atlantis, in its most recent cinema iteration, home of DC's Aquaman, but originally made famous through Ignatius L. Donnelly's very influential 1882 classic, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. Another example before the Second World War is H.B. Lovecraft's 1931 story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which you can hear more about on the WTTE episode on Weird Fiction, episode 14. For me, one of my absolute favorite stories that I found in researching this kind of Homo aquaticus idea came from 1942. So before World War II, before Scuba, this American novelist named Theodore Pratt wrote a book called Mr. Limpet, which in 1963 was made into a popular Warner Brothers movie called The Incredible Mr. Limpet. So in fact, right at the time that Homo Aquaticus was kind of hitting the newsstands, uh, people could have had access to watch this movie, and, and they did. But the book in particular dwells on fears of an evolutionary dead end that has brought humanity to World War II. Uh, and that the idea that the the way out, the do-over, was going to be by having humanity replay evolution, starting from a human being moving backward to a fish stage and an intelligent fish. And that person, Mr. Limpet, was going to uh, be responsible for, for the new evolutionary journey of humanity to, you know, a better place, I guess. And I just think that that story is so interesting because it has the evolution component and it is 
you know, a story that was entirely made before scuba technology. From the 1960s onwards, there were lots of stories inspired by developments in underwater exploration, just as strange deep water sea creatures have inspired the creation of many science fiction aliens, the depths of the ocean had clear parallels with the vastness of space. The 1960s saw exploration in both of these unknown and uncharted areas. Still, today, the vast majority of the ocean is completely unmapped and unexplored, about 80% of it, in fact. Typical of this overlap between space and ocean is Arthur C. Clarke. Renowned, of course, as a science fiction writer and most famous for 2001 A Space Odyssey, he was also obsessed with scuba diving. And he wrote this amazing novel called The Deep Range, which tells the story of a future Earth in, in a time period when people live on all kinds of planets and spacefaring is really the most prestigious thing someone can do. Uh, but this future Earth produces food in the oceans by dividing the oceans up into areas where whales are ranched for meat and areas where plankton are farmed for harvest. So you think of, and, and the deep range is meant to evoke very clearly the American West of the 19th century with ranching and with wheat farming. Um, and this is a story of a failed spaceman sent to, to earth to learn how to ranch whales and this, this character gains an appreciation for the power of the ocean, which he comes to realize in some ways is better than space in the sense that it has lots of resources. And in some ways, he finds it to be more mysterious and harder to understand and control than space. But in the end, he comes to believe that space is a better frontier because of its endlessness. So it's this really interesting story that looks at the oceans as a space that's very similar to outer space in many, many ways, but is somehow in the end different. Just as with space exploration, the framing of the ocean as a frontier brings with it conceptions of exploration, invasion and exploitation. There was seemingly unlimited wealth in this new territory opened up to humans, whether through fishing or the extraction of gas and oil. New thinking on environmentalism may have taken off from the 1960s and 70s about our impact on the planet and the limits of what can be produced on land without destroying it. But this kind of thinking didn't really apply to the oceans until much, much later. I think one of the first things that really finally started changing that idea of the ocean being this, this kind of endless sink and endless source of resources was the crash of the Northwest Atlantic cod fishery, the 500-year-old fishery that had provided fish for the world, for so for such big parts of the world. Codfish that fed uh, slave populations in the Caribbean, fish that was sent to Europe for all of the um, Catholics who needed to eat fish on religious holidays and to make up for the fact that the fisheries in Europe were, were declining. Long story short, in, in 1992, Canada closed the Northwest Cod Fishery and everyone expected that in 10 years without the fishing pressure on the stock, it would rebound and it didn't. So it wasn't even, I would argue, the closure of the fishery, but it was the really unfathomable experience of seeing that it didn't rebound as everyone expected that it would after it was left alone. And it took 
probably another decade or more after that for scientists to understand that what had happened wasn't just removing a certain number of fish that were a good economic resource, but that in fact, the the scale of fishing of that cod stock had changed an entire ecosystem. Increased awareness of climate change has meant the oceans and deep sea are a central part of environmental awareness and of literature and pop culture too. In the 80s, there's even more examples of this. Some of my favorites are Kurt Vonnegut's Galapagos, which is a story about humans evolving to be sea creatures. In a, it's a pretty fascinating story. Kevin Costner's Waterworld is very clearly about sea level rise. For sci-fi fans, there's this great book uh, by David Brin called Star Tide Rising, the story of humans and chimpanzees uh, uplifting dolphins to sentience and space travel. And I love that because you see that the different species need different kinds of prostheses depending on whether the action is in a wet place or a dry place. So you have these really interesting uh, combinations. But then if you look today, you see young adult literature like Cat Falls, Dark Life, and the sequel Riptide, which posit these biological changes that happened to the first generations of children born in the Benthic settlements. It sounds a lot like Jacques Cousteau's kind of easy assumption that once people live underwater, they'll just change. Which brings us back to freediving. Our bodies can adapt and be trained to dive for long periods underwater, and many divers feel a connection with the water they just can't experience on land. According to one freediver, on every dive, it's critical for me to be hyper-aware of my body, position, movement, oxygen level, and the depth of the water around me. I'm surrounded by blue, split by rays of sunlight dappling between plankton particles. Within seconds of submerging underwater, my body experiences what's known as the mammalian dive reflex, which causes the heart rate to slow and blood from the limbs to shunt to the torso, enriching vital organs with oxygen. At some point, I become weightless, suspended as if I were floating in space. Tension leaves my muscles. After this, my body becomes negatively buoyant and free falls towards the ocean floor. It feels like I'm flying. We can't live underwater, but we can learn to appreciate it, to find calm and joy within its confines, to learn from the cultures that have generations of experience diving to the ocean depths. And we can certainly try not to destroy it. The ocean clearly can't be treated as a frontier to be depleted and destroyed, but it can be an inexhaustible source of inspiration for scientific discovery, for myths and legends, and for some great science fiction. That's it. Thank you so much for listening and a huge thank you to my guest this week, Professor Helen Rosodowski. You can check out more on her website, fathomingtheocean.com, or pick up her book, Vast Expanses, A History of the Ocean. And I'll put links to her and her bio and her work and everything else on the WTTE website, wttepodcast.com. And that is the end of season five. As you may have noticed, this past season was nowhere close to being released fortnightly, as previous seasons have mostly managed to be. Lockdowns, closed schools, working from home, and everything else of the last while just did not make for a good podcast schedule. 
So I'm going to use this season break to have a think about how I can make the show a little bit more sustainable in the longer term, because I really, really like making it, but right now it's killing me. So firstly, thank you so much to those who filled out the listener survey that was running for the last few months. That's really going to help a lot now in thinking about the show. And of course, thank you so much to all of the Headstuff Plus and other supporters who have been so generous with monthly donations. It really means so much. And that money is all going back into the show to help it grow and find new listeners and help out with quite a few different areas. So stay tuned. I'm going to make a few changes. There may even be a little bit of a refresh of the artwork and a couple of other bits. And I'm going to start working on some new bonus episodes too for all of the supporters. So if you're a member of Headstuff Plus, keep an eye out for some new bonus episodes there and some other stuff. And you can become one if you are not at headstuffpodcast.com. I'll keep the website updated, wttpodcast.com, and you can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Effect, and I'm on Twitter at CEDread. So for now, thank you if you are a new listener or you've been here for 54 episodes over four years. Amazing. Thank you even more. And I'll see you soon for season six. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.